This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. A year ago this week, we gathered in the studio, sleep-deprived, shell-shocked and possibly still a bit drunk and took stock of the extraordinary general election result. Having called an election she didn't need to, Theresa May had squandered a vast poll lead to end up losing the majority she inherited from David Cameron. The Tories were left with 318 MPs, down 13. Labour were up 30 to 262, having gained traditional Conservative strongholds like Canterbury and Kensington, as Jeremy Corbyn confounded his critics to win 40% of the vote. Once again, we found ourselves trying to make sense of a result few, including the parties themselves, had predicted. Well, today I'm joined again by two people who have had rather more sleep than the last time we were all together in this studio. Tim Shipman, political editor of the Sunday Times, and Alice Thompson, interviewing columnist for the Times. I'm also delighted to be joined by two people who weren't here a year ago because they were at the heart of the operations of their respective parties. Tom Swarbrick was Theresa May's head of broadcast, shaping the TV and radio coverage from Downing Street and on the campaign trail. And on the line from Cardiff, Steve Howell, who was Labour's Deputy Director of Communications during the campaign, working closely with Jeremy Corbyn as the polls turned. Welcome to you all. Before we come to how the last year's panned out, let's go back to that moment at 10 o'clock on Thursday, June the 8th last year, when the exit poll landed and showed not only that Theresa May had not made huge gains, but was on course to lose seats. Let's start with you, Tom. Where were you and what went through your mind? Don't make me re-remember that. <laughs> um, difficult uh, where was I? So I was I was standing in uh, CCHQ with a lot of other people who were, you know, suddenly people came from nowhere. I'd been there for a few hours beforehand, uh, and it would it was relatively calm. It was the first time we'd actually had a a day off because, of course, there wasn't a lot we could do on the TV and radio given the voting was happening. A lot of people appeared very quickly um, with about an hour or so to go, and then half an hour to go. The, the room was absolutely rammed. And the clock ticked to to 10, and Dimbleby intoned in his way. And it was just total silence. Uh, You could could hear a pin drop. In fact, more literally, you could hear someone retching, as that was the only other sound that was um, accompanying Dimbleby at that moment. So this has been reported a few times, not least. Who was was retching? Yeah. (laughs) Do you know, I still still actually don't know terribly. No one actually went and asked who, who might have been retching. I have actually, in a in a quiet moment, gone and re- and rewatched the moment that Dimbleby gave the exit part. I don't know why. He was, he was, he was I know, sort of masochist. Sort of, uh, exactly, and it 
it's one of those things that the feeling you think that has passed because time helps suddenly bubbles up from nowhere in that moment and you and you're straight back into that room and it, it was it was horrendous okay so steve um let's come to you where were you having a slightly different night i imagine so i was at labor party head office at Southside in westminster on the eighth floor with the team the communications team were all around um one large table a couple of large workstations um with a big screen above us and uh, there were other people uh, gathering around in the background to, to look at the screen and and when the the exit poll was announced there was a lot of air punching and and cheering um and actually there's a video of this which uh, unfortunately <laughs> is not mine and i i haven't been able to post it online although i'd love to which is i'm just sitting in the middle of it saying let's let's stay calm and uh, and i was a i was very tired as most people were but b i was conscious of the fact that there was a long night ahead and exit polls ha- have been wrong it only needed to be slightly wrong for and uh, it, it, you know in the in in the tories favor for for us not to have a hung parliament but uh, at that moment obviously people were feeling pretty pretty euph- euphoric about it and if we wind the clock back very slightly what were you expecting at 5 to 10 what was the what was the what was the actual Labour expectation at that point? There was no uh, official agreed expectation. We had worked out various scenarios and what we would do, what we would say and do in the event of different scenarios. Uh, there had been a fair bit of planning for the possibility of Jeremy forming a government. There had been meetings between senior people in our team and senior civil servants. And um, some some people within the strategy group uh, thought we were going to form a government or thought or, or were were fairly confident of of that uh, possibility others were much more um, cautious about it but I think all of us felt that we'd had a very good campaign the problem we had in terms of judging the outcome was was we could it was possible for us uh, if you look at all the electoral arithmetic and and this is not hindsight i'm talking about the calculations we made at the time it was it would have been possible for us to substantially increase labor's vote into the high 30s and still lose some seats and so we had to be uh, fairly cautious in in our expectations uh, we knew we were definitely going to increase the labor vote substantially there was a, a a pivotal point in the high 30s where increasing the vote substantially would convert into a hung parliament depending on various other things that that happened Alice let's bring you in where were you when you saw the result and what what, what were your thoughts I was actually in the news building um, I'd just come back and I'd been reporting on the day and I remember at sort of five to ten it was all quite calm relaxed at five past ten we realised we'd got a really good story. Well, <laughs> it only took us five minutes to um, sort of re-educate ourselves. And we were all, oh, that manifesto. It was all the manifestos for, and we knew that was going to happen. And oh, Theresa May was never popular in herself. And oh, the leather jeans. And it's amazing how quickly you can rewrite history, um, <laughs> even though pretty much every single person in the room, and it was a room packed with journalists that night, had all thought that Theresa was going to actually do quite well, despite everything. They really think that, though, at that, at that late stage. I'm going I'm to pipe up and say I didn't. <laughs> I'd, I'd come to the view that it wasn't going terribly well earlier. 
Guys, uh, I don't think most of us had no. any clue it was that bad. And I do remember then a big discussion about who was going to take over from Theresa May. So it was, it was an immediate assumption that she was going to have to go very briefly. Mm. And there was a lot of discussion about, oh, you know, Pretty Patel, sort of Michael Gove. Really, <laughs> looking back at it now, it was rather extraordinary. Everyone really was drunk if they were talking mm. about I mean, it, it, was, it, was a sort of, it was a sort of moment of desperation followed by, you know, business as usual, really. And Tim, where were you? Uh, I was also here um, and watching, uh, you know, as Alice says, I think it didn't take me five minutes to, to go from thinking um, amazing to what a great story um, and planning out, you know, what happens next. My favourite quote from a, a senior Tory, if we're allowed to use it, of the atmosphere in their office when it broke was it was like someone had shat in the meringue. <laughs> <laughs> it's all getting very graphic, what with vomit and... What a very Tory dessert to have chosen. Absolutely, yes. It should have been eaten mess mm. and something like that. <laughs> Well, presumably it was after that. I mean, it was pretty clear that the, the Tories had had a shocking campaign. But then, you know, as Steve says, you never quite know how that's going to translate into into the result. And you go back to 1987, Labour ran a brilliant campaign then uh, and lost by, you know, a majority of 100 or more. Um, this time round, it was pretty clear um, that they were making some, uh, some good progress. Uh, but no one was quite clear how that was going to translate into seats. And if you look at the result, we are in a sort of a fluid situation where the natural places... Uh, people win their votes uh, are, are changing. You know, uh, Labour won Canterbury, and I think there are some Tories who think they might well win it next time as well. Um, but if you talk to some of the old Labour right, they point out, well, look in the sort of white working class bits of North Kent, where Tony Blair had eight seats, and and Jeremy Corbyn made no progress there. So um, this is a you know, it's a fluid situation, um, and Brexit has changed some of the dynamics of of who mm. turns out for which parties. I, I thought Kensington Chelsea was probably the weirdest result of that night because it wasn't when you looked at and you analysed it but actually it's so totemic of the Tory party and then you had Grenville after that it was rather kind of extraordinary and in fact it was the one having listened back to the podcast from, that we did a year ago it was the one result we hadn't got mm. because it was delayed for, yeah. for, for ages it but, was a very very late one wasn't it the Kensington one and, and incredibly close as it was in, in lots of different seats around the country I remember Amber Rudd just about getting over the line quite late on in the night in, in Hastings um, and that being uh, one of those odd moments where you are, well, for some of us anyway, delighted that uh, Amber had, had held her seat, but uh, astonishing that it was even that close. Yeah. And was Hastings for you the, the sort of seat where you knew things were going oh, well, really? Uh, <laughs> at what, what point did you know that things were not planning, panning out as you'd expected? I think there was there were points during the campaign itself, rather than on on the the, yeah. the the moment at which the result came in, that we thought this isn't going our way or this isn't going the way we want it to. I know that in in Steve's book, uh, which I'm sure he'll come on to talk about, um, <laughs> game changer, <laughs> game changer, yeah. um, brilliantly interviewed on LBC show, of course, my show. For reasons of fairness, Tim, have you got a book? Oh, I've, no, nobody needs to know. <laughs> <laughs> Alice, have you got a book? No, afraid not. No, very good. Right, anyway, plugs over. Carry on. Um, Steve refers to the poll that came out in Wales. Quite, I think, quite early on in the campaign, basically showed yes, Wales, was, turned, yeah. Wales turning blue. The media narrative was then set, I think, of this is clearly going to be a complete walkover. People worried about that. Um, it wasn't a, that poll landed and everyone went, oh, OK, job done. I think people were actually quite concerned that it wasn't going to be like that. We knew it wasn't 
going to be as good as, as some people were suggesting. We didn't think it would be quite I thought the other issue up. actually was that none of us really knew anything about Northern Ireland until that moment. So then there was a sudden panic that, oh my God, who are these other people? The and D- then D- How many Foster, DUP are there? <laughs> it was, wasn't it? Then I remember the- I was sent off to interview Arlene Foster. I remember I'd literally never been to Storm, which is extraordinary for someone who's been journalist for that long, that I've been up to Scotland and Edinburgh probably 40 times, but I'd literally never gone in Storm. And suddenly I found myself on the doorstep trying to work out what they were doing. And it is amazing how political journalists have to suddenly become an expert in something in about 10 minutes because the news desk start asking very specific questions about where they stand on a whole range of issues. Well, and the papers were full the next day of things like, gosh, they don't even believe in dinosaurs and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> One of the big issues, we thought at the time the problem with the DUP was going to be over gay marriage. Mm. And, and Ruth Davidson came out quite quickly and said that she uh, had had assurances from Theresa May. And actually, that's not turned out to be quite as significant as A, Brexit, and, and B, abortion law. I interviewed Arlene Foster. She had an extraordinary backstory that none of us knew either. So I, I actually, I found her much more impressive than I thought she was going to be because she was, you know, she'd nearly died twice in her childhood. Um, she was very involved. She's, you know, she was much warmer and very good friends, actually, with Ruth Davidson, which is surprising in a way because you thought that that would be the person she didn't get on with because of the whole gay marriage issue. But abortion wasn't a big issue and she didn't think that was going to be an issue at all, in fact. And I don't think she even thought Brexit was going to be a massive issue. So it, it <laughs> was interesting that the gay marriage was the one that we were worried about and that's been the least of the problems, really. But it took a long time, didn't it? I mean, how, how, was it three weeks before the deal was sealed and a government was a government could be... Well, or the Tories could be confident that they were going to be able to form a government. Yeah, it was, um, it was nearly three. It was nearly three weeks, and, and yeah. Theresa May had trotted off to the palace and told the Queen that she had uh, it all in the bag um, at a time when you know she didn't, frankly. Um, and yeah. uh, I think that was constitutionally quite an interesting moment. And you had a situation where Arlene Foster played it pretty cannily. She kind of half offered her hand and her support. Um, but then withdrew it and got a hell of a lot more money and concessions as a consequence. And I think a lot of Tory MPs were looking around at the way the DUP were negotiating a sort of uh, coalition arrangement um, and said, can't we send them to Brussels to do the Brexit negotiations? (laughs) (laughs) Tom, what was the the atmosphere like in Number 10 immediately after the election? And there was a sort of, there was the immediate speech that Theresa May did outside Number 10, which I'm not sure anyone would argue with hindsight necessarily struck the right tone. No. After the election night itself, I then uh, ended, up going, I th- I ended up going back home to try and get some sleep and then uh, came in and literally on the train on the way in, listened on my portable radio because I'd, I'd given up trying to listen to stuff on my phone because it was eating my data so much that I ended up with huge phone bills as a result. So I bought this portable radio, so it's literally with this thing to my ear, listening to this speech and could tell reasonably quickly that it wasn't quite the thing that maybe should have been said at that moment uh, and then got into number 10 and and slightly kind of set about thinking, well, how are we going to get through today and then how are we going to get through tomorrow? And it just became a case of jumping each each fence as it came. I mean, there was no sort of grand plan, here we go for the next six months. It, it, it felt very empty at that point because a lot of people didn't come back in. With all the money you had in the campaign, Tom, didn't they pay your phone bill for you? <laughs> I, I, did, I, I did, in the end, I have to say, I did put in, a, uh, put a bit, uh, put in an expense for that, yeah. I thought that was fair <laughs> enough. It's quite a end. revelation. And, and Steve, at what point did the penny drop that maybe Jeremy Corbyn wasn't going to be Prime Minister? Has as, it? As quick. <laughs> <laughs> the, the immediate morning afterwards, 
obviously there were some fairly upbeat statements made everyone was was feeling very buoyed by the by the outcome and and it 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 looked uncertain as to whether uh, Theresa May was going to be able to form a government and um and if she if she did form a government how long it was going to last and there was talk at that point uh, about there'd have to be another election in the autumn um this this is unsustainable it's 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 un- uh, unstable if if you if you go uh, ahead with a deal with the DUP um I would say that that view receded by the Saturday. I was in a strat- we had a strategy meeting on the Saturday afternoon, and and I think people realised then that it might be a longer battle. We didn't frankly dwell on it very much because, and what we were more concerned about was uh, stepping up to our responsibility as an opposition and 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 uh, saying, well, what are the policies we're going to challenge? How are we going to make life difficult for the Tories to implement things that were in their manifesto. As it turned out, the Queen's speech didn't have very much of the manifesto in <laughs> yeah, they, it. They, 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 did, they did a lot of that <laughs> they work did for the you. Jo- they did the job for us. It was a sort of, we're going to have a parliamentary session that's going to do next to nothing. And they've been very successful at that, to yeah. be fair to them. They yes. stuck resolutely to their policy of doing very little. Of doing very little. And doing what they do yeah. quite badly. That's and at least not the, doing yeah. the manifesto, though. As we're talking about Jeremy Corbyn's prospects of becoming Prime Minister, there's been a lot of talk in the last 12 months about whether or not we've reached peak Corbyn. Is there a way of going back to the heady days of, of this time last year? Where do you stand on that? Is it just one more heave, or does, does he need to do something different to sort of seal the deal next time round, or is it just a case of waiting and hoping that the... The Tories fail. Well, it's not a case of waiting or hoping. It's very important that uh, the Labour Party is proactive um, in its campaigning and in its policy initiatives and so on. You can't sustain the heady atmosphere that followed the 2017 general election. The old, old, old uh, Jeremy week Corbyn. In, week in, week out. Yeah. I mean, the Glastonbury thing and, and so on. It, it, it's well, it, as we've it's seen, very the festi- difficult the, to sustain that kind of thing. The festival season this year doesn't seem to be looking quite so kindly on Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> <laughs> with uh, Labour Live. I mean, you literally can't give tickets away. Last year, that was all Labour did was g- offer to give things away. Tom, <laughs> from, on the other side of the fence, what's your take on, on peak Corbyn? I think it's very difficult to say, isn't it? I think one of the things that came out of the the election result and the campaigning and and the commentary around it is that it's very hard to make predictions these days uh, because we just don't know and I think a lot of it will come down to the priorities that that the government and the Conservative Party set for themselves Um, and I think we are seeing a complete focus on things like the environment and something coming up on the NHS politically that is very important for them given what we saw at the last election but um, uh, Steve I wonder if I could ask you a question if I may on the sorry to take over your podcast Matt no it's on fine the, no, on no, the, no. you're on the radio you're in a professional broadcast because Jeremy Corbyn stands up in PMQs and he says uh, to the Prime Minister in his sort of final flourish he will say step aside and let Labour take over and I just wonder why that particular formulation of of, of the government stepping aside and allowing Labour in because that of course isn't how it works. I, I'm not sure that you're not splitting hairs in terms of the language. Is 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 there any great significance in it anyway? It's just a, I, a manner of speech. Well, I just wonder whether it was, you know, because some of the criticism of, of Labour afterwards has been that they've, they've said that they're a government in waiting and have kind of acted as if it's about to happen, they know it's about to happen and they can, they can kind of stroll in another general election to, to make that happen. I just wonder whether that was indicative of a massive confidence and self-belief within the team around Corbyn and Corbyn himself that he was going to become Prime Minister. 
there is confidence that uh, we can win a, another election. I mean, if we would go into the next election, we will go into the next election on a higher base than we went into the election in 2017. I mean, 2017, I think the polls were were always misrepresenting the situation. As, as we've discussed before, Tom, the, the polling we were getting on our policies was far higher than mm. the polling that Labour or Jeremy were getting. Part of the problem that you haven't mentioned is that to the outsider, Labour actually, Jeremy Corbyn way was seen as quite cuddly and quite kind still and quite a grandfather. Whereas now after the anti-Semitism, I think that's been the biggest issue for me this year is that Labour's seen as much nastier now and that with momentum and all that side of it, people have seen a different part of Labour. And I know with my children's generation that they were very, very pro Corbyn and they were all Labour supporters and they're now much more nervous about it and much more worried and they're taking a much closer look than they took this time last year. And I think that is to do with issues like anti-Semitism and that, that's what I would say has come out most in the last year about Jeremy. There's also- I'm, not so sure, I'm not so sure about that, you know. I mean, the polls are not showing a significant change in, in, in opinion despite the controversy around anti-Semitism. Although, I mean, that, actually, that was Steve, his personal ratings... His personal ratings have come down quite a lot, and the ratings of who who would make the best prime minister have fallen quite substantially for Jeremy since the start of the year. That, that's true, but I think there's a link there to to more to do with a, a divided party, a leader who seemed to be presiding. I mean, we don't know for sure what lies behind some of these things, but but I I do think that that's his personal ratings are very much linked to people's perception of his ability to manage the party. Uh, that was certainly the case um, prior to the 2017 uh, election. And, and uh, I think one of the big mistakes the Tories made and the Tory-supporting media made, frankly, was to, was to attack during the... I'm talking about during the election campaign last year, and I think it's continued, is, is to attack Jeremy personally on on these kind of issues because all it does seem to do i mean the reality of what it seems to do is harden support for 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 him amongst his certainly amongst his core supporters and make them more determined than ever and i mean it just didn't work all those front pages all those pages in the daily mail and other newspapers uh, attacking Jeremy during the election campaign just did not work. I think this is also 3D chess. We keep thinking about, you know, is Pete Corbyn a result of Corbyn and the Labour Party? It's not just the result of that. These are very fine margins we're dealing with in British politics now. If Theresa May had got 2,000 more votes in, in six or so seats, she, she wouldn't have needed the DUP. If she'd got about 5,000 mm. votes fewer in about seven or eight seats, uh, there would have been no way she could possibly have stayed in power. Um, these are very fine margins in small areas, and it's you know it's partly down to Corbyn and the Labour Party, but it's also partly down uh, to the government's performance over the next you know one, two, three, four years, however long we have to wait. We've just got to take uh, a short break, but we'll discuss uh, Theresa May and her future after this. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back to the Red Box political podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Joining the studio by Tim Shipman, Tom Swarbrick and Alice Thompson and Steve Howell is on the line. Uh, let's turn our attention to Theresa May then, the sort of year that she's had and her prospects going forward. Alice, you mentioned that Grenfell came pretty quickly after the general election and it was 
a terrible time for her as Prime Minister. And actually, I remember going down to Granville actually and watching her and it, it was extraordinary because that was her lowest point, I think. Not the election or whether she cried on the night or how she felt about that. It just seems as if she had totally lost it. And then she went into the BBC in a sort of impromptu interview with Emily Maitlis. It just, it seemed a really bizarre moment in time when it was blatantly obvious to the rest of the country that something had gone hideously wrong and that everyone really needed to apologise at that time. And she just seemed completely lost. She didn't seem to be getting any advice. She didn't seem to know what to do. She seemed so deeply uncomfortable when she was at Grenfell. And it was really a tragedy. She just needed someone to say, you know, we are phenomenally sorry about this and we will do everything we possibly can to help. And she was almost running away from it. I mean, it did seem like more of a crisis than the election result. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we were joking earlier about Theresa May going straight after the election. I mean, I think the, the 48 to 72 hours after the election was a very dangerous time, but Grenfell was even more dangerous because it showed, it reminded everyone of the stuff that she'd got wrong during the campaign and apparent inability to emote and to, to look like she cared. Um, it was also a, a function of the fact that she'd lost this amazing political Praetorian guard of Nick, uh, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, who had been drummed out by the campaign. Uh, the previous weekend and it was left to civil servants making decisions about whether she should go and uh, see the victims and they said oh no that's all a bit unsafe get in the way of the police but you know most political leaders would have overruled that and just gone and done it anyway Um, and at the end of that week members of staff were so concerned about her well-being that they were talking about bringing in the SAS from Hereford to give her a talk some resilience Um, that's how bad it had got she had a massive personal crisis um, and you know credit to her she got through it um, but that was a dangerous time and I think if the cabinet had been in a position where they felt there was a, a, an obvious successor I don't think she'd still be here. Tom I remember you and I once had a row in a pub about the, <laughs> uh, about the Downing Street's handling of, the, of, of Grenfell. Put, put your case as to why it wasn't Oh, I can't make a case for why it wasn't utterly horrendous. Yeah, I mean, it was. It was horrendous, um, and lots was got wrong. Of course, it was. And I've I've, I've read the Andrew O'Hagan's long yes. read on yeah. on Grenfell, which is excellent, which is really really fascinating. It's utterly heartbreaking and 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 completely fascinating about what was going on at that time within the council, within Grenfell itself, the fire brigade, and and obviously the inquiries looking at that at the moment. We got stuff wrong. Clearly, it wasn't anybody's finest hour to to put it mildly i think the the there is a difficulty though over the perception of of how she is with people how she emoted during that and i think one of the things that we got we did do very quickly was get this public inquiry started so that we could actually get to the bottom and we could say that we were going to get to the bottom of of what was going on um and that was that was done very speedily and was the right thing to do and i still think whether or not you can I still think there is an argument to say not going to see people who had just recently had their children killed in a fire, literally 24 hours after that, to have someone go up to these people to say, would you like to meet the Prime Minister, who is going to tell you, couldn't tell you anything about what we were going to do at that point because we were still getting information about what to do. And, and and bring cameras there to, to film it happening and all the rest of it. Is that the right thing to do for those people? You don't who have are to the take ground? the cameras. You could just go and do it. And well, let people, mm. you know, people who were there would then take pictures. You would have need. You wouldn't have needed to take. It's a bravery, isn't it? That was the criticism that that she wasn't there in front of uh, on camera, going down and and seeing people. I can't think of a single prime minister going back. Probably Ted Heath is the first one you get to that would not have gone and done that. 
And I mean, you're, you're putting a face, Tom. Do you think that basically that she should have just done that? And I, I, I get that all of the calculations are being made in a difficult time and all of that, but it, uh, yeah, and sure. ultimately it I makes think, absolutely no difference yeah. to the uh, if, actual horrendous incident yeah, that happened. If, it, if we're talking about her. how, what's the best way of managing the media around this, then then yes, yeah. yes, probably. Yeah. And um, you're talking in but, a political environment where she's just been criticised for, yeah. for a yeah. fortnight for having no empathy and telling a nurse that there was no money for her salary in a debate and all the rest of it. I mean, this was a massive political issue and then to have a situation like this and to respond to it in that way mm. I think was catastrophic. I also think the country needed calming down because you forget you'd had Manchester, the bombing, and you'd had London Bridge. It was a really bizarre summer and it was incredibly difficult for people to feel there was no leadership so she did have to go to Renville really to show that there was some leadership and to show that she could calm everyone down and instead it, everyone felt really completely lost after that and so let's uh, let's move on a bit how's the rest of Theresa May's year panned out I mean it's been sort of highs and lows of she's not going to get the deal in Brussels and then she did get a deal in December and then there was the hugely successful reshuffle in January. One of my one of my highlights of the year. It was only on January the fourth or something when Chris Chris Grayling's twenty seven seconds as Tory Party chairman. Was, well, he did that job with a plum. With a long have to say by comparison. And Brandon Lewis immediately set about reversing everything that he'd he'd done. Tim, what's been your sort of high high points and low points for Theresa May in the last? Well, year? it's a series of sort of middling points, isn't it? I mean, she's <laughs> having you know having got through the reshuffle. Um, you know. In Churchill's dictum, she's kept buggering on with Brexit, um, you know, by a sort of process of grinding monotony. She's gradually getting there. It's all deeply uninspiring. And Tory MPs veer between, you know, pondering whether to do away with her or uh, just sort of put up with um, a rather sort of lacklustre, but, you know, not wholly catastrophic performance. And I think, you know, during the campaign, she said she was strong and stable. Then it looked like she was weak and wobbly. She came out of that election perversely weak and stable. Uh, and the question is now on, you know, with Brexit votes next week and then in October, will that sort of weak and stable thing continue or does she go back to being weak and wobbly? Um, and that's the question that faces us for the next six months. If I could jump in. Yes, uh, the, other, the other question that faces the Tory party, reading some of the debate that's going on within Tory circles uh, about... Uh, the government and how how the Tory party should respond to to Corbynism it seems to me there's a there's a very very sharp debate taking place about uh, on the one hand uh, making a stand for free market economics and Tory traditional Tory positions and on the other hand what's been dubbed as Corbyn light which Theresa May is accused of adopting uh, making concessions to arguments that Labour have put forward on, say, tuition fees or on housing, adjusting your policies accordingly. And, and the argument against that uh, for, from in Tory circles is if people are offered Corbyn light, then they'll conclude that they may as well have the real thing. Alice, is this a slightly sort of false debate? Because it's, it's sort of based on the premise that Theresa May leads the Tories into the next election. Do you think that that's likely? I think... Actually, the point, there was a moment when Theresa was being Labour-like, really, and that was very much with tuition fees, I think, and before Christmas. And then since then, I mean, a lot of it's been management. I did actually write a column, which I can't believe I wrote now, saying that Theresa May was actually doing much better than we all thought. But that, then, <laughs> literally, I've only, only just... Well, I've deleted from the article. I can't remember the details. <laughs> <laughs> I've only just written that when Windrush happened. And I think that was a big moment, because really... Immigration is something that was her issue. She had been Home Secretary for longer than almost anyone else recently. She had 
owned that subject and she'd always was meant to have been much more capable as Home Secretary. And Windrush was, was a disaster from beginning to end. And Amber Rudd having to go was also a disaster. And I think that made me realise that it was never going to work with Theresa May, that actually she couldn't get on top of the issues. I mean, after Grenville, you'd have thought she'd have understood that she had to apologise if something was going wrong. It would have been very easy with that Commonwealth heads of government to turn up and say, we've got a problem, um, this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to resolve it. And it would have been quite a good moment at, um, to have resolved Windrush, unless... I think instead they spent sort of four or five days letting that story run with doing nothing at all about it. You mentioned Amber Rudd, but Tom, we've also seen in the last 12 months Michael Fallon, Damien Green, Priti Patel, Justin Greening sort of resigned because she didn't want to move jobs. What chance did Theresa May the next one? Something else will rear its head very quickly that needs to be squashed down quite quickly and then something else will pop up that needs to be squashed down and you're playing whack-a-mole until the next election. Yes, there are, of course there have been some very difficult moments over the last year, and and you know particularly with Brexit. But one of the things I think that was done very well was the handling of the incident with Russia and the and the Salisbury incident and the clear um, corralling that she did of, of other countries around the world to follow um, Britain's lead uh, and expel people. And I did I do think that Corbyn's response to that, Jeremy Corbyn's response to that, was particularly poor so so it's not been completely doom and gloom but but clearly you know <laughs> there's your election slogan for yet, election. Yet, jeremy yet, may yet be proved right in his skepticism on some of those points but we, we won't go into the detail let's not get bogged down in whether or not it was the russian mafia that did it um so uh, just just looking forward for the next 12 months then is it are we facing basically a similar 12 months to the last 12 dominated by brexit other things popping up uh at various points for both parties and neither party really making any progress are basically sort of stalemate in, in, the, in the polls, Tim? Well, sort of broadly, yes. I think Tom's point is interesting about responding to events and May obviously did better with the Russia situation than she has done with, with some other ones. Uh, I think the problem a lot of Tory MPs have with the Prime Minister is that, yes, you don't always get it right when you're responding to a crisis. Sometimes you do it well, sometimes you don't. But what they would like to see is her doing better at the stuff you can actually plan as well. Um, government is about setting a sort of direction and and trying to move the country in certain places and, and showing some leadership and doing that. Yes, you're going to always have crises where you don't always get it right. Um, but if they think your instincts are wrong when you approach that crisis and that you're not actually sort of taking a lead on the stuff you can plan, that's where the problems arise. Tom, the next 12 months? Yeah, I think I, I think one of the interesting things is the clearly very public, open debate that is going on within the Conservative Party about how you remake it or how you change it or, or, or what's important to the to the party over the over the coming years. Uh, that is going to be particularly interesting for uh, people to watch and to write about and to hear because it's also obviously underpinning a bit of a, a jostling of of certain people for potentially when the time comes to move to the top job. And what about you, Steve? What does the next year hold? What does Jeremy Corbyn need to do in the next year, which he hasn't done? Jeremy, as regards Jeremy, I think he's got fantastic energy, obviously learnt a lot. Uh, I, I didn't know him before I took the job at the beginning of last year. Um, but I was, I was very impressed by the fact that he uh, took on board feedback. He learnt as he, he learnt as he went along. He was someone who, who was elected Labour leader without having any experience on the front bench. And that's being thrown into that role uh, unexpectedly uh, was a huge challenge, would have been a huge challenge for anybody. But I think he's grown as time's gone by in a whole number of ways. He loves campaigning. He's got incredible energy. And um, 
I think, uh, you know, I think he's, he's got the potential to win an election when it comes. Presumably the big risk for him is if the Tories do reinvent themselves, get a new leader and a new, a new policy platform. Actually, the best hope for Jeremy, presumably, is that Theresa does lead them into the next election. Well, not necessarily, because the other candidates who could be leader of the Tory party, in some ways, politically, make, make easier targets. I mean, Rhys Mogg, for example, uh, being an obvious, obvious case in point. Easier targets in the sense that it clarifies the political choice whereas Theresa May has tried to fudge that political choice with what people call Corbyn Light. So I, I don't think... that There's nobody among the um, likely candidates for leader of the Tory party that I think makes it harder for Jeremy, and in some ways they make it make it easier because of that ideological political clarification finally Alice what, what are you looking forward to over the next year what do you expect well, I think she's actually she's seen off Boris Johnson and she's seen off Mogmania to a certain extent so she's managed to get rid of two potential enemies who can yeah. we suggest that Boris Johnson has seen off Boris Johnson? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm not sure how much she helped them. I think she's done that. So what I would really like her to do now, if she is going to stay, is to choose two or three issues so that when we get to the he- end of this whole Brexit thing, whatever happens, we feel we've done something else in the last few years rather than just discuss Brexit. So whether it's the NHS or education or anything, if she can just try and focus on a couple of other issues and get those through, that's all I really want her to do. Well, it's fascinating stuff, and uh, I'm sure there'll be highs and lows along the way. That's all we've got time for this week. Before before you all go, Tom, when are you on LBC? Very good question. I am on LBC Saturday and Sunday morning, every Saturday and Sunday morning from 7am until 10am. Steve, what's your book called? Game Changer. Available, Available on, on Amazon. Very good. And Tim? I do have a book out called Fallout. It's uh, now in paperback in all good and bad bookshops. Very good. I'm going to start writing. You can start writing a book immediately as well as doing a column in an interview and everything else. Uh, my thanks to Alice Thompson, Tom Swarbrick, Tim Shipman, and Steve Howell. Subscribe to the, my morning email at the times.co.uk forward slash redbox. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on an Android device so it arrives each week. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.